from The Solo Project. This is Never 9 to 5, a podcast about the soloists who are redesigning their lives around the pursuit of interesting work. I'm willing to scrub toilets and pet sit. Like when I was writing, I would be like a house sitter, a pet sitter. I often had to augment and I'm, I'm just, I'm not afraid to do crap work. I never want to do crap work again. But if somebody needed an article on how to express their dog's anal glands and I needed food, I will do that. Spike Gillespie walked away from an office job as an editor in 1988. She's been soloing ever since into great success. She's published nine books. She was voted Best Writer in Austin in 2016 by Austin Chronicle Readers. The key to her longevity as a soloist, diversification. Gillespie, who is now 57, is a self-described serial entrepreneur. In her four decades of independent work, this Texan, by way of New Jersey, has been a journalist, a writer, a wedding and funeral officiant, a rancher, a venue owner, and in her latest venture, a professional scone maker. In her post-pandemic life, she's opening a new yoga studio in Smithfield, Texas, called Surrender Yoga, Slow Yoga for Old Punks. In this episode, Gillespie shares candidly about her unconventional career path, her experience soloing as a single parent, and the positive daily habits that sustain her creativity. Note to listeners, Gillespie often paints as a way to relax and was doing just that during our conversation. There's also a little bit of spicy language. Listen accordingly. You are so diversified as a soloist. It's it's mind-blowing. Um, what do we have? We have journalist, blogger, writer, teacher, wedding and funeral efficient. Um, I love that it's both, by the way, public speaker, rancher, scone maker, yoga teacher. It's extraordinary. So how do you keep up this productivity and versatility? And let me ask you this question. Why is that versatility important to you? Is that happenstance or, or is that intentional? To me, it comes down to like so many different factors. And a lot of the factors that the reason I am who I am, a lot of those were negative factors. I'll give you some examples. The number one example, people are like, how do you know how to do so many things? I know how to do a lot of things. And I think the real reason is, well, I started working when I was 14. I'm the fourth of nine children. I grew up very, very poor. And I'm not even complaining about this, but I'm saying like I never had any clothes that weren't hand-me-down or people in church would give us bags of clothes like because we were the poor people. And I remember when I was 14, I went and got a job and I bought my first pair of jeans. So I've always been really, really hard worker and having multiple jobs. And then my son, Henry is 30 now, but when he was two, his dad left and it was me and Henry, um, no child support. And I was working as a freelancer. And I can't remember exactly when I quit food service. But I, I tell people the number one catalyst for being able to do so many things is that I was a single mother and I had to hustle, like long before the gig economy came along. And part of that was because I was not going to give up pursuing writing because that's who I am and what I wanted to do. And also it allowed me to have flexible hours. So that was like, that's what fed it. But when something is engaging my interest, whether that's keeping the electricity on or I love painting, that's it. I don't gauge it by hours or um, what's that corny but true saying, when you have a job you love, you never work a day in your life. So that's where the energy and the inspiration comes from to learn to do mm -hmm. things and do And I wonder too, in reading some of your book in the early parts of, I have a young son, he's six, I'm an old mom, but I think about the idea of being a single mom and having the financial pressure to provide, where does the motivation of fear come into? 
to these pursuits or does it not for you? Because I think that plays a big role in keeping people away from soloing or that prospect of, I won't have health insurance. um, I won't be able to provide it's feast or famine. I've got someone depending on me. That then becomes the, a litany of excuses to keep you from soloing. Was that something you confronted or are you, you have a more fearless perspective on, on that. And I guess I'm speaking specifically if you dial back to when your son was younger and more of a dependent. Well, when Henry was really little, I didn't quit drinking until Henry was eight. And I am, I'm an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic, but I, I feel like alcohol and addiction, I mean, that is a sort of a liquid courage, a self-medication. So I think I would sort of relax myself into impulsivity at times. Um, I don't like to pathologize myself, but when I can look back and find a label that sort of feels right, it just helps me to work to make changes for the better. So, but back then when he was real little, I think it was just like, I moved to Austin. I had $2,000, a 10 month old and like 16 boxes of stuff, no place to live, no work lined up. But at that point I'd been doing food service forever, even through college. I didn't understand like after college, I never had this sort of set path that I saw. And I come from a blue collar background. Like I didn't have any real role models for well, this is the path you take or you have to provide insurance or whatever. And I, regarding the insurance, that's tricky because it, it kept changing and changing. So for example, when I had money to pay for insurance, I couldn't get it because I had a pre-existing condition. And so, but I didn't want to go, like a few times I did contract work. I worked for the Livestrong Foundation for a little while. I pick up these gigs and offices And it would so deeply and darkly affect my mental health for the worse. It was like, I don't even feel fearless. I feel like survival, you know? That's a really interesting point because I think this podcast is for and about people who are physically, mentally, and spiritually incompatible with corporate employment, or that is, you know, being chained to an office desk. So talk to me a little bit about that. At one point you said, you never want to work a day in an office again. So talk to me a little bit about that that experience and that decision and why you feel that way. Well, I should say, and this kind of goes back to the other question, is like when I moved to Austin, I'm young, I'm like a punk hippie. There's a lot of community and artist community, and they all helped me. Like, so there, I had that built-in support. But well, in 88, it was a, a bit different because I had got, I was recruited by Whittle and Whittle was bringing in all these cool people and I'm having a great time. I go to work barefoot, which everybody thinks is kooky. You know, I'm definitely the kooky person in the office. I'm not even trying to cultivate that. I can just look back and see where like all these Southerners, there were a lot of Yankees too, but we're just like, whoa, what just walked in here? And then as I was editing, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I would be having to rewrite, like really seriously overhaul these pieces that came in that I thought were poorly written. And I'm watching checks go out the door for like 2000 bucks uh, to these people. And 2000 bucks in 1988, when, you know what? I just thought, I'll just be the writer. Other, But I, I do talk a lot about um, addiction as I reflect back on my life. And I'm not proselytizing. Whatever path people are on, that's cool. But I feel like um, waiting on tables was much more conducive to my alcoholism. You know, I mean, I worked fewer hours, waited on tables, could stay out late. And um, I liked having my own schedule. I'd wait on tables from 11 to 2. And then maybe I'd go home and take a nap. And then I'd go to the Vatican pizza. And I must have written longhand because there were no laptops back then. 
I like the flexibility and I don't want to be, and, and Whittle was actually at the beginning before they built their really wacky headquarters. These were just eclectic buildings that they sort of gathered together. Now, later on in my life, when I would take like that office job at Livestrong, I was covering for a friend of mine on maternity leave. Oh gosh. I mean, I'll just give this example because it's one of my favorites. These women in research or whatever department they were in, fact check, they hated me. Now, a lot of people I know from being told many times in my life, I have a pretty intense personality. And it's it's like my therapist says, well, you can turn it down or you can just be around people who enjoy that, right? So I'm in this Livestrong meeting and I'll just... I'll just say whatever I want in a meeting because I don't give a shit anymore. And also it's contract. I'm not being an asshole and I'm bringing like fresh ideas to the corporate marketing table, which is kind of impossible to do. And also I'm noticing at the table, some of the higher ups are like, whoa, they really like our idea. And these women who were just Always. like, yeah. they would send office memos and they would like try to correct and revise my writing. And even if it was an in-house memo that I remember they would sign it with all all their credentials, like PhD at the end. So I didn't reply to them, but I had told a friend about this and she's a uh, surgeon and a lawyer and an MBA. So she started signing our personal <laughs> notes with all of her credentials and I would sign mine S-G-N-J, because <laughs> like, I'm from New Jersey. It's really hard for me to work around people. I just don't <laughs> like it. I couldn't relate more. I am a full-time employee. I work for a hospital. I work for NYU. I actually happen to adore the medical center and I love writing about, I'm a science reporter. I worked at Popular Science. I worked at Discover. So I adore writing about these passionate surgeons and doctors, especially during the pandemic. It couldn't have been more exciting place to be, but I'm a thousand. Oh, it was like, oh, I mean, you yeah. had, a, it, it really was um, the silver linings there and to see what transpired and how people stepped up and did what they did because they could was extraordinary to me. And so I love that yeah. part of it, but I'm, I so relate to what you're talking about, the corporate environment and like the marketing and all of the other layers that go around, make it very difficult to stay in that position. Because if you're a writer, if you're an editor, if you want to create great content, your tolerance for all of the other things kind of diminishes. So I'm impressed that you were able to just sort of have confidence in your writing ability, cut the cord and move on. And clearly that was um, worked for you. You have, is it nine books now or 10 books that you've published? I think nine. And, but, but bear in mind too, I would also like, I don't want to do this ever again now what I'm about to say, but I would if I had to. I'm willing to scrub toilets and pet sit. Like when I was writing, I would be like a house sitter, a pet sitter. I was a caretaker for a, for a child with autism for 10 years until he reached adulthood. But like part of my ability to succeed as a writer, if we were to stack up the income I've made as a writer and hold it up to like, I don't know what I made last year, all of my books combined, all of my magazine articles would probably not total <laughs> like one year. So I I often had to augment and I'm I'm just I'm not afraid to do crap work. I never want to do crap work again, but I would write stuff like um golly. I I you know, I don't know. If somebody needed an article on how to express their dog's anal glands and I needed food, I will do that. I would. There was I'm not I'm past that now, but there was a time But let's talk that. about that because you have you have many ways to make money. You have many talents. Is there a particular occupation that you do because it's lucrative and it brings in an income stream? And is there one that you do because it's close to your heart? Or are those things one and the same? Yes. So 
Well, it used to be a lot of overlap. I started performing weddings in 2006. I've probably done around 2000. And on Facebook, I just started posting photos of me and the couple and I would write ILMJ. I love my job. I did it as I didn't do it like as a great marketing scheme, right? But it's become that, right? I've posted thousands or almost thousands of photos of me and these these people and I loved it. And I it became very lucrative very quickly for me. Once I just did a few and got the hang of it. And then I had a year to hang out by myself. Okay, backing up a little bit. In addition to performing weddings, almost six years ago, I bought a ranch that was an abandoned meth lab and junkyard and I turned it into a wedding venue. So I've had a year of hanging out out here. I usually live in the garage like it's my place. I have turned my house into a cross between an adult Montessori (laughs) and like the art therapy room at the psych ward. Because I I needed to keep my mental health. I again went off on a tangent. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so good at adult Montessori. Um, but yeah. it was something about yeah. oh, lucrative. I got it lucrative. So the money that comes in primarily is when I rent the ranch house for a whole weekend, Thursday through Sunday. I give people a great deal, and that is my cash cow. Now I had this year off, and the first big wedding I did out here. Can I just am I allowed oh, to yeah. say cunt on the air? This bride was horrible, and she uh, she really I like to say she cunted out on me. I can handle it. I've had stressful people before, but after such a lovely break, I, I thought I don't I don't want to put up with anyone's shit ever again. So I made this proclamation: no more weddings at the ranch. I'm going to piece it together by having petting zoos and writing poetry. <laughs> And then I hired this young man. He's so, I have two employees, two, well, I have more than two, but I have hired two managers. Mary lives uh, in a trailer on my property. She's awesome. And then John Paul and John Paul in his other world before the pandemic is a concert promoter, a social justice worker. And he's just brilliant. And he said, well, look, weddings are your cash cows. People are driving you nuts. But what if we were a cushion between you and the client? What if we just took over? And I thought, he, that's great. That's what I need. It's as a soloist, I often forget to ask for help, or I often forget that I'm allowed to hire somebody. You know, I lived not even paycheck to paycheck. I wrote a lot of hot checks back when you could run a magnet over them and get a few days. <laughs> um, but now that I'm established, it, not only is it okay for me to ask to hire people, but I'm giving them an opportunity too. That's a mindset that I'm really working You're your on. own corporation. You know, you have middlemen. I am. You know, everything's weird. In my mind, I'm just like a little kid in a small town in New Jersey that was told quite literally that women don't get educated. Like when I was accepted at a really prestigious university, my father said, no, women don't do that. You need to get And so you actually didn't pursue, Not th- I didn't did you go? Stop me. Uh, no, what I did was because my high school counselor also told me your parents can't afford this. Just go to the state school and be a teacher. Now there's nothing wrong with the state school or being a teacher not my aspirations at the time. You know, ironically, now I'm a teacher. But I, I, many, many years later, my high school counselor saw an article about me in um, USA Today. And I, I remember he wrote me this email. I still had a Prodigy account. And it was in all caps, like yellow letters on a black screen. He's like, I'm so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. And I was pissed off enough that I wrote back, ungrateful bitch that I am. And I was like, you know what, Bill? You told me in high school that my parents couldn't afford. Instead of telling me their scholarships, I mean, I come from serious blue collar people. Instead of telling me like, hey, you graduated 
in the top five, like there, there's opportunities. You didn't help me. And to his credit, he wrote back right away and he said, I'm really sorry. You're right. But imagine if I, I, my life would be really different if I'd gone to that school. Instead, what happened was I finally figured out that despite what my father was claiming, he did not have legal uh, say over me once I was 18. He told me until I was 21. And so behind everybody's back, I applied to a school in Florida and I um, applied for financial aid. And even when I got all of that, I remember this so well, I still felt that I had to ask my father's permission to go to school. And that's heartbreaking to me. Like, that's how under his thumb I was. We'll be right back. You've talked about soloing as a necessity. And it does seem like given your upbringing and everything you've done for yourself out of survival builds a sort of a sense of self-reliance that's probably operating in the in the background, right? So you're going to get this done, whether someone tells you you can do it or not, you're going to find a way to make things work Absolutely. for you, right? And Absolutely. so in, in some ways that becomes a bit of a superpower so that you become the person who can juggle a wedding and funeral efficient business, be a public speaker, own a ranch, venue owner, scone maker, adapt, pivot at a time when, you know, you think about the pandemic, there's some data that people who are already independent in soloing endured the pandemic better than people who weren't because they had this adaptability. And we know how to be alone. You can't tell it because whenever I'm being interviewed, I'm actually like, I'm obviously talking a blue streak, but I love silence. And I like to have at least, I don't know, seven hours of silence during my waking hours every day. Just, I mean, there are the dogs are barking and stuff, but I just need it quiet. And I think for pandemic, a lot of people that was hard because like, where do you go? I'm like, where do I go? Where do I stop? I have a lot. <laughs> I, 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 I never I have run so out many artist friends who are living their best life during the pandemic. And it's a, it's a bit of an abrupt transition to have everything go back. I'm just going to say, and it's weird to talk. I, I was just going to say, I don't want it to go back and I'm, I'm doing everything I can so that it doesn't go back. And I, I don't know about your friends, but like I posted a lot of positive social media posts during pandemic. That's a way that I connect with people as an introvert uh, is I make no excuses for my social media presence. Um, I did notice that it, my videos seem to be bringing people joy and I liked that part of it. I also wanted to have an awareness that it could be off-putting to people who are really stuck or really hungry or about to be evicted or like think of the worse off, as my mother would say. I didn't want it to be like, hey, I'm gloating. And I think for those of us who had an incredible lockdown, <laughs> it's like, we, it's our secret, you know, don't talk about it. Uh, no, I think that the pandemic, there were so many silver linings to the pandemic. It's extraordinary, just even in the shift mm -hmm. of remote work, work from home, people recognizing that this commute might be a waste of time and that there are other ways to be productive in the world has shifted things in a, a dramatic way. I wanted to talk a little bit about your social media approach. You seem very disciplined about it. Um, I personally have, you know, we all have conflicted feelings about social media. On the one hand, I find it incredibly inspiring because you can follow whoever you want and there's so much great content. I absolutely love that there are no gatekeepers between me and the content that I want. If I like somebody, 
and they have a presence on social media, yes, I can connect directly with them. And I think that is absolutely extraordinary. On the flip side, I'm not a prolific poster because I'm not at this point in time marketing anything or I don't really have something I think would be of value to people. And I'm totally comfortable with that. But you know, obviously, if you spend a lot of time on social media, it can have a negative effect on your psychology. So I'm wondering if you can talk to me about how you use social media to your benefit and your your philosophy about social media. So when social media came along, I'm not going to go too far into it, but I remember I I was um, South by Southwest Interactive. It was the first or second year and everybody was like, this interactive shit ain't going to fly. This is like a bunch of like a hundred geeks. Meanwhile, the music people are everywhere. But I was invited to be a panelist at that first or second one. And I remember it was sex and violence on the internet. And uh, Debbie Stoller was sitting next to me. She's the editor of Bust Magazine. She's also a big time knitter, as am I. And um, I remember the title I was given or I gave myself was Madonna of the Infobon. <laughs> like I was um, a moderator for bulletin boards on Prodigy in 1995. So I had the social media thing going long before there were, and I, I know I sound like Al Gore, like right after Al Gore invented the internet, I invented blogs. <laughs> but the truth is I did have one of the first blogs in the country and it not it was not calculated. And it was actually sent out via email, uh, right? Because we didn't have all these platforms. And Prodigy paid me pretty well. I think they paid me $500 a week to just like write my feelings and send them out. But over the years, I took to social media just like, I don't know, it suits me. Now, if you were to follow the trajectory of my Facebook you would probably see somebody who went from being argumentative all the time and trolling back. I used to write for The Austinist, which is Austin's version of The Gothamist. And I had a boyfriend at the time and he told me like clockwork. Every week when it would post, he could time me calling him at work. I'd call and I would say, well, it posted because I would want feedback from him. And then I would say, I'd call back and I'd say, well, the trolls have started in. And he said that whether or not I would write back in great length and just defend myself point for point, or whether I would simply write, suck my cock, asshole. He said that the same message I was trying to say to people was, I am too nice, you asshole. <laughs> you know, like I, it was social media. I had to kind of get the hang of it. And I would get trolled a lot. You know, I'm a, a outspoken woman, ardent feminist, all those terrible things in our society. I'm really thankful that all of the meditation and therapy I've done over the years, the recovery work, but I feel all of that gave me tools and benefits as to getting older. And um, the trajectory is now, if you look at my, my stuff, you will almost only see positive stuff, but it's not me freshly liposuctioned on the beach in a yoga pose with my boy toy. What I mean is people have watched me going from being from someone who was battling constant suicidal ideation to somebody who closed on a house today that I'm going to turn into a multi-use place to promote healing from PTSD and whatever, a community space. So a lot of people will write to me and say, you're so brave or fearless or whatever, so courageous. People tell me I'm fucking courageous because I don't dye my hair. And that's so telling and sad <laughs> for me that in our society, I'm considered like Joan of fucking Ark. Because, I mean, I, I've had gray hair since I was 28. So it's sad to me, but then I realize um, when people write to me, they say, 
if I put my story out the way you do, I would lose my kids or my job or my family or whatever. That makes me really sad. But I also think uh, it's not my job to heal people. <laughs> I have to keep reminding myself that. Telling my story on it, on the social media helps me heal. I hear privately from people all the time. Can you help me find a, a recovery program? Can you help me escape a domestic violence situation? I got a note two days ago from a woman who's like, my marriage is breaking up and we're so distraught, but we have to rehome our pot-bellied pig. He sleeps in the house. Can you take him? I'm like, sure. <laughs> if you can bring him to me. <laughs> so like the other thing I want to say about how I present my life, I, I tell people it's like I don't have filters. Decades ago, my father disowned me multiple times. Like he'd kind of reel me back in so he could bash me over the head again. And I, I don't know. I think maybe it was just like, well, fuck it. I'm disowned. Like, I'm just going to write about these people like they're dead. Not not in a mean way, but I'm not going to pretty up this story. Um, and it caused a long, long estrangement with my family. I don't regret it at all because it helped me to heal myself and to understand the parts of myself that I have struggled with so much, you know? So in, in that, in this, in this really weird way, like being a soloist, being a memoirist, having a social media platform is, my job is to be me. We'll be right back. Writers are the original soloists, you know, in a lot of ways. And I'm curious about, because writers have been doing this long before we ever called them an, an indie or a soloist or even a freelancer. There are people who are called to write and that's what they must do and they tell their truth. And it changes other people's lives and, and that's why they're respected and revered because they, they tell a truth that people are hungry to hear and nobody else is talking about. At what point in your childhood or adolescent do you understand that you're a writer and that you have talent and that this is something you want to pursue? Seven years old. Right? It may be eight. Um, I remember it really distinctly. I was just working on a poem. It's called Mrs. Rosen Invented the Internet. And she was my first grade teacher. My poor mother, who had nine kids <laughs> by the time she was 36, resented Mrs. Rosen because she had a little blue copy book that she would send home. She would write a word in it. I wasn't even writing it. And then I would have to find a photo in a magazine to clip and put with the word. That was my first inkling about putting photos and words together. That's why I love social media. So anyway, when I was seven or eight, and that is when I learned how to really like write sentence structure and stuff. And when I was 10, I started writing my first book. I mean, not that it was ever finished or published. But I know, and I look back and maybe one day we'll all die and there will be a heaven and St. Peter and Jesus will show up and say, yes, it was intelligent design. Fuck you and your psychological theories. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, it was often shaped by uh, by what happened to me, you know? So my father, I, I, I hate that I still talk about him. He's been dead a very long time. But when I say this stuff, I'm not exaggerating in any way. We were not allowed to speak in his presence. He would come home from his truck driver job. He would come in. He would be very angry. I under now, understand now the combination of mental illness and backbreaking work, but it doesn't matter. I was a little kid. We couldn't speak. I would have to take off his socks, clean his glasses, find his dentures. And then um, if he wanted to make a phone call, dial the phone for him, like rotary. Yeah. <laughs> And we could not speak at all. So I think what happened is I could write. 
I could put my thoughts down. That was a silent way to be incredibly vocal. I have a distant memory of one time leaving a note for him on a table. I have, I tried to communicate with him until I finally stopped. And I think he ripped it up, just like, don't ever do this. So I think that's why I always wrote. I had to find my vocal voice. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, obviously you have talent for it too, right? So you have some innate talent to do that. And maybe the practice over time, you evolve and get better. But I can't help but see that that is sort of at the heart of your, your soloing career. Going back to one of the questions I asked in the beginning, we talked a little bit about which of your many professions is the most lucrative. Is there one that brings you the most joy that you're just never going to give up, whether it brings in money or not? Okay. So the other night I um, ate a delicious pot cookie, which I love for recreational purposes, but I also, I know it sounds like I'm justifying, it is a wonder drug for my PTSD. And I was just so chilled out and I was painting and I thought, wow, if you, if you could do anything you wanted in the whole world, what would it be right now? And I thought, I just want to open a little store called the Happy Little Flower Painting Shop. And people just come in and buy little happy flower paintings. Like, I just want to be that person. And what I mean is I've worked I'm not, this is not a complaint. I have to keep emphasizing that. I'm not different than other people. But like so many people, I've busted my ass since I was like, even before I was 14, I had to raise my five younger siblings, Mm -hmm. right? So I was working from the get-go. I worked so hard. I worked multiple jobs. I supported my son. And now without going into any details, I will just say that in a, a way that I can only use the word miracle, that is not a spike word at all. But I had some astonishing good business luck I have a business partner. We went to high school together. And even though he's a white middle-aged man, he's still my friend. <laughs> and he has um, coached that. Yeah, that was a joke. He was, But uh, he has coached me a lot. And um, I made a business deal that is paying off now in a way that's um, in a way that having grown up poor, it, it's like um, I'm someone that's gained and lost a lot of weight multiple times. But they say like when you lose weight, you still, I'm dysmorphic. I don't, I really seriously do not know what I look like. You look great. Um, That's what you look like. Oh, thanks. You're sweet. But I just mean like, I just, I just don't know. And I, so I, in that way, I sort of have this financial dysmorphia where I think I saw myself as like, I'm just going to freelance for the rest of my life. And every time somebody finds the freelance check they forgot to send, I'm going to buy groceries right away. That's my mentality. Like they can't take away groceries. And I'm going to buy yarn and I'm just going to work till the end of my life. But because of this remarkable surprise business deal that I made, it's not that I can necessarily retire for the rest of my life, but if I'm thoughtful about it, I really can do whatever the fuck I want for the rest of my life. Just saying that it makes me want to cry because I just, I bought this house two hours ago and I, it's, it moves me not just from the, my own poverty, but from thinking about how, um, there were so many times as a, I, I, over pandemic, um, I thought more about my parents during the pandemic than I ever had in my life in therapy or anything. I had six dogs, one died recently, but I found myself saying things my mom always said to us kids, like, like mommy needs space, mommy needs space, <laughs> you know? And I, now I look back and, and when I wished for her to leave my dad, what could she do? What can a woman with a high school education and nine children do? She could not get a loan or a credit card in her name if she wanted to. And here I am. I I need to get over this. You don't deserve it stuff. I need to reframe it. I need to make it not be about that because my choice is to be of service to people. 
I'll open that little yoga studio. But I, I'm just astonished that um, being a soloist, not even choosing it, but feeling like I didn't have a choice, would ever ultimately lead me to a measure of financial success. I've never been focused on financial success ever. And that's where I'm really annoying in this interview because it's like, well, fuck you. She's one of those people that <laughs> she's one of those people that can eat French fries all the time. You know, it, it's weird. My life is very, very weird. Well, yeah. you know, from an outside perspective. Oh, I wanted to, can I, I wanted to, I, oh, I, I don't think yeah, it's yeah, weird at all because what I see from the outside is a level of uncommon persistence that can only end up in success because you are so prolific and persistent and you seem adaptable that eventually you're going to find your way to success. That's my outside perspective. Um, you might feel differently, but I just, you know, your level of productivity is, I think, uncommon. Well, um, another factor in that is, and thank you, uh, is, is um, you know how the kids have all the different pronouns and stuff? <laughs> and I, I'm at the age of like, get off my lawn. And so even though I've been a super progressive my whole life, and I remember when my friends were coming out of the closet and people would be like, fag. And I'd be like, you can't like that. No, people can, people are what they are. But then suddenly it's like he, her, she, them, they, whatever. And I was just like, all right, are people taking it too far? But what I realized, I'm so grateful to the millennials or whoever's swinging the pendulum so hard in that direction. That allowed me, I really think, to understand something that I was never told as a child. And I'm not saying that it would have stuck. I think the cultural media impact on on all of us in our society that you got to be heteronormative and have the kids and do all that shit. I was uh, brainwashed into that. I was programmed into that. But every time I would get involved in a one-on-one hetero situation, um, I, I would think I always or almost always would be with men that I could outpace, which I now think is because I didn't want someone to dominate mm -hmm. me. You know. Anyway, let me just shorten this and say I suck at relationships, but maybe that's not it. I think I was meant to be alone, whether that's because of the damage I suffered as a child or how I was born. I don't care. Remember who was that uh, actress that she's like, I'm self-partnered. And that really bothered me just at, from a grammatical point of view. Like you can't be self-partnered. Like that just didn't work for me, but I get it. I used to always have that thing in the back of my head. Like you're not partnered or should there be a partner? Or do I want to? And I, my last partnership was not romantic. It was collaborative but a similar dynamic came into it. A power play came into it. And I was deferring when I didn't even know I was deferring. And hilariously enough, because we were talking about social media, that guy, I found out years before I met him, he was following me on social media. I think because I'm like a local celebrity, I hate that term, but he, that's who he likes to follow. So then we met, became friends and he would love everything. And then when we had this falling out. He's like, the sheer volume, the sheer volume of your posts. I'm like, nothing has changed. It's interesting how people perceive me. Like you were saying, you can choose to follow or not mm -hmm. follow somebody. I, I wasn't like I was hammering handwritten blog posts to his front door. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I like to say now that I'm an asexual merman <laughs> and I in really, truly, genuinely embracing being a crone and in watching people suffer 
in their marriages during the pandemic. Like if I, I'm going to kill my husband tonight, everybody, <laughs> that's it. Sorry, not sorry. And I didn't have any of that. I feel so fortunate and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm protesting too much. I, I'm not saying I feel fortunate and everybody should be a single person alone. I just am so glad that I could finally snap out of that indoctrination that's why I have so much time and energy. I used to run around behind when I would get in a relationship. The crazy shit I would do for men. Well, you know, you should read the books. It's I dedicated. If I could have back one fifth of the time that I poured into trying to make some loser like me, I would be I would live to 150. Can we talk a little bit about some of the the tools um, that you couldn't survive soloing without? I know I'm going to sound like a hippy-dippy woman that's about to open a yoga studio and is trying to recruit victims. (laughs) But honestly, meditation, my number one tool. I have not missed a day of meditation and it's just been a long, long time. I meditate every day. Super important tool. I have to always have at least one Apple product and Apple product. When I travel internationally, I can run my business from my phone. So if you make me pick one, I pick that. And then the third one, well, I feel like a very, very pretty darn new tool for me is like asking for help. I don't, for, I know the tools I'm mentioning are sort of like not necessarily concrete. Uh, well, okay. I got it. Like communication skills are such an important tool. And I I learned that the hard way, which doesn't mean I I necessarily tone things down, but I can now, right? So so I think communication, uh, an electronic device and meditation. Wonderful. I think those are honest, those are honest tools. And then finally, I want to close with the things that you enjoy that you couldn't possibly do if you weren't soloing, whether it's traveling or... Oh, so, well, it's funny because one answer begets the other. I used to travel a lot pre-pandemic. I didn't start internationally traveling until I was in my 40s and it's my thing. Um, But during pandemic, I adopted so many animals. I now have, I have around 40 animals. So I, I love that I can be an animal hoarder by being a soloist. I have to be home to keep an eye on things. Um... I, I can do arts and crafts in the middle of the day. I can eat a pop brownie for breakfast. I think probably a lot of people in offices so, do that yeah. too. But everything, like everything. Well, Spike is prolific. She's published nine books. I can recommend any of them, but start with Pissed Off on Women in Anger. This book sat on my desk for a month, and the title alone inspired dozens of interesting conversations with friends and family. It's perfect for your coffee table. Clearly, the topic hits a nerve. For more information, visit on Facebook and Instagram at spike.blessed. Never 9 to 5 is a production of The Solo Project, LLC. This episode was produced by Patrick Mitchell. I'm Nicole Dyer. For more information, visit thesoloproject.com. And follow us on social media at The Solo Proj.